Well, it's good to be back. I've not been in church for three weeks. I've had a wonderful two or three weeks, Felicity and myself and my family. Three weeks ago, my son Samuel got married to Sarah, and some, many of you were there, and uh, we just had a glorious day. And then the following weekend, Fliss and I were at the Global Leadership Summit in Chicago. And those of you who don't know about that, we host a... a uh, a, a sort of a satellite of that in October. That's what G, um, Jesus, that's what Richard was referring to. <laughs> You're being promoted, mate. Must, must be the shorts, you know. Um, yeah, so we, we are looking forward again to hosting that. And please book in. Do not miss that event. Sell your, wa- your watch, you know. Get rid of your mother-in-law or something like that, you know, sell the car, you know, whatever, but be there. And uh, Fliss and I were there, and it's probably one of the best ones yet, and it's always good. So Fliss and I are very excited, and the team are excited about hosting that, and about, fi- about 500 leaders and, and, and delegates from all over the southeast of England will be coming here for that event, so thanks, Richard. And the children's choir, while I'm talking about that, wasn't going to do a double plug, but... You know, last time we did the children's choir, one of the, one of the criticisms I got, and I, I didn't know what to do about it afterwards, was that a number of our people, with a certain amount of vehemence, I have to say, expressed frustration that they were not able to get in. We have a thing here. It's not official. It's unofficial. It's called vineyard time, and vineyard time means you arrive 10 minutes late for everything. You cannot run on vineyard time for the children's choir, and I want our people to enjoy it. So this time, folks, be unvineyard-like and get a ticket before the event because I do not want to be answering those emails again saying, look, I'm sorry, you arrived, you didn't get a ticket and you arrived late. What did you expect? Richard wasn't joking. We filled this place, maximum capacity, 850 people, and we turned 200 people away. It got in the paper. Not the children's, the turning away of 200 people was in the paper. So do not, do not, you know, a word to the wise, I've said it, I seal my lip. Right, okay, let's pray, let's get into this. Father God, I want to say thank you for the, the incredible privilege that we have as your children of being able to meet together and meet with you. Thank you for all that we've tasted today already. And now, Lord God, feed us with your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So the preaching team, many of us are away on holiday, this, that, and the other, and uh, the preaching team have been looking at their favorite psalms, and I, I say straight up, my favorite psalm, and always has been, and it may be a bit cheesy to some of you, is Psalm 23, probably the best known of psalms, but I'm actually not going to speak on 23. Uh, I, I then thought, well, I'll go to Psalm 34, that's my second favorite, and I'm not going to go there. Uh, and then I thought, well, I'll go to Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God of hosts to me. Even the sparrow and swallow have found in the, a, a home in the temple of our God. I love that psalm. Psalm 91, if you're going through a really tough time, but particularly if you're going through some medical challenges, Psalm 91 is a great psalm to look at. I could go on and on and on and on. But for some reason, and I'll not go into the reasons, I felt that the Lord was drawing me back to Psalm 16, so I'm going to sort of rattle through it a bit. Time is a bit precious, and I've already waffled on too long. But Psalm 16 is is one of those psalms that is referenced in the New Testament time again, and I always find it interesting when I'm doing my Bible studies to ask the question, you know, what bits of the Old Testament 
were the guys in the New Testament that we read about looking at. And Psalm 16 is one of those verses. If you want to know which is the most used psalm in the New Testament, it's Psalm 110. You might like to look at that. But Psalm 16 features in the first great recorded sermon of the, New Test- uh, uh, of the early church when Peter, in response to God's incredible blessing and outpouring of his Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost, Peter is so fired up with the Holy Spirit of God, he runs down into the street and he, and he preaches a blinder of a sermon. That word blinder is a theological term. He preaches a blinder of a sermon, and there is an incredible response. But during the course of that, he references Psalm 16, and so it's clearly worth looking at. And so I wanted to just spend a bit of time looking at that, and I've been meditating on this psalm for probably about three years now, so obviously I could waffle on a little bit. But let me give you a few highlights that will hopefully, during this holiday season, give you something to sort of go away and think on and and reflect on. I'm going to call this, and the reason will become clear shortly, I'm going to call this the path of life, the path of life. Uh, And before I commentate on it, let's just read it. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not put out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You have made known to me the path of life. Now, many of you here are in that place where you can actually say, whether you're familiar with this verse or familiar with the scriptures, but you can say at this point in time, Father, thank you, for you have made known to me the path of life. And who, who and what am I referring to? I'm referring, of course, to Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You know, what once uh, in John 14, you can read about a little conversation that breaks out between Jesus and his disciples. And, and, and they say to, to Thomas, actually, says to him, says, Lord, you're talking about the way. I don't know the way. Do you know the way? We don't know the way. What, what is the way? If you leave us, we're lost. You're our guide. You're our Sherpa. You are our, you know, our, our, our tour guide for life. If, if you've gone, we're, we're scuppered. And Jesus looked Thomas in the face and he said to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And we are in this privileged place now, post Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. We are in this privileged place now where he invites us to know him. And in knowing him and setting your heart and your mind, your resolve to know Jesus, you are hooked into the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So you're not being given a roadmap, or as first and I, we've just been in France with my little MG, and we've been trying to follow these AA route, map, uh, route directions. Usually they're very good, but they're, they're in extraordinary detail. You know, it's like go 25 meters, turn left into Rue de something or other, then turn 15 meters. And I've driven past four of these things, and Fisher say, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait, oh! I'd already flashed past four of them, and we got hopelessly lost on more than one occasion by trying to follow these kind of bits of paper and getting the pages wrong. You are not struggling with that. You have a person, somebody who steps into the situation and says, hang on, Chris, wait a minute. Put that to, follow me. Come on. Follow me. Jesus, your Jesus, is the one who takes your hand and says, peace, 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 follow me. He is the path of life. I want to say that straight up. And if you're, you're not sure about that, and if, you, if you're still working that one out, you need to have a word with Rich and his team, because Rich runs our Alpha course, and we'll be running that in the autumn. And that's a great way of unpacking what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I could probably stop preaching there, but let's look at Psalm 16, and I'll, I'll tease you with a few thoughts here. Verse 2, then, is my first little point. And if you are taking no notes, you might like to just jot this down. He's the source. Verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. He is the source. He is the sum of all of our longings. I love that little phrase. I don't know if I read it or heard it or heard it in a song or made it up myself. For years and years now, I've been carrying that thought that he is the sum of all my longings. I am a passionate man. If you know me, I'm a passionate man. And I take that passion into my hobbies and interests too. I am passionate about things. But you know, I have learned this much at this point in my time that actually all these passions I have, these appetites and, 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 and desire to know and to see and to experience, all of that keeps coming back to Jesus. It may sound like, wow, I'm a million miles away from that myself, but I want to say to you, I was once in that place, but increasingly I'm finding I cannot live without Jesus. I cannot live my life without carving out time to be with him and when I'm in his presence and when I'm with his word and when I'm in prayer and when I'm reflecting upon him on, and looking at the, this life and the experiences that I go through, good, bad and indifferent, when I am doing that through the lens of knowing Jesus, suddenly it begins to seem like it makes sense to me, even the difficult things. It's not an overnight fix. But get it into your head. Take this thought away with you that Jesus is the sum of all your longings, whatever they may be. All your yearnings, all your passion, all your desires. And if you will be a follower, you will explore the truth of that statement. He is the source. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Next little point. Boy, this was, I had to come a million miles on this one. Verse 3, the psalmist here, David, he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the glorious one in whom is all my delight. Boy, when I first came to Christ, I was a million miles from that for various reasons. 
I, like many of us here, if not all of us, I was broken, I was busted, I was angry, and I was hurting. And actually, people had often been the reason for that. When I looked at my life, it wasn't things so much as people who had disappointed and hurt and in some cases even victimized me. And so when I came to Christ, the whole idea of getting together in a context like this was something I didn't want to do. I just want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I want to go walks down country lanes or something like that. And I could get on very well, thank you very much, with this faith thing. The problem was getting together with people like you. God has done an extraordinary thing. When I went forward for the ministry, originally I was ordained as an Anglican minister in 1982. I did years of training and I, became, I was ordained. And you know, I've held high masses in cathedrals. I've presided at those. That's a whole other story. But when I went for my ordination interview, the final interview lasts four days. It extends over nearly two years. And the final event is where you actually spend four days residential being interviewed. And I just leant back. I can see it now. It's the Bishop of Southwark, I think. I said to him, I said, the trouble is I hate people. Will that be a problem? <laughs> he did laugh like you did. I don't think he took me serious, but it actually wasn't far off the truth. But the truth is now that God has done something in my heart. I want to hang out with people. I love people. Um, I, I don't want to elevate that. I mean, you can catch me in a bad day as anyone who knows me knows. But I, I actually do enjoy people. And whereas it used to be things and places, and, and to a great deal of, I need a great deal of solitude in my life, I, I actually now crave the company of people. Yes, of course, my family, my grandkids, but, but also you guys. And, on holiday this year, we've, we've been able to meet up with various friends and family from the church, and, and we've loved that. God has done something in me. And, and actually, that is him breathing into us and imparting some of his spirit because he is passionate about you. He's passionate about you. He is mindful of you. And those who say they know him and those they say that who love him they begin to find their hearts warming and turning to the, the objects of his affection. I should say subjects of his affection, which is you and me. And I have found, I mean, it's, not, it's God's at work at me. I now look forward to being together. And I was excited about coming to church. As I said, I've not been for all sorts of good reasons. I've not been in church for three weeks. And I look forward to coming this morning and spending time with you. The psalmist celebrates that fact. You know, they are the, the, the people, the, the, the people of God are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. These are aspirational. This path of life, if you like, that I'm unpacking here, which is subservient to the knowledge of Jesus, is, is aspirational. But some of you will be making progress in much of this. Some of you will be making progress in a little bit, but there's progress to be made for all of us. The third thing I wanted to mention was a quiet spirit, verse 5. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. I could spend a lot of time on this. And from time to time during the last couple of years, I've, I've spoken about the importance of contentment. Contentment is something that is a very rare jewel and commodity in today's Western Britain, Western culture. It is not something that we are encouraged to be. Watch 30 seconds of advertising on, in any form you care to, to you know, uh, reflect on or see, and it will be trying to create dissatisfaction 
and aspiration for something else. That's how our culture and our society, our business works. You create a need, which then the advertiser or whoever is trying to promote says, I can fill that need. You have a need. You didn't know you had, but you have. You've got this need. And what's more, I'm the answer to that need. So this is good news, so pay attention. But actually in the scriptures, it comes at a different tack. It talks about contentment and the importance of contentment. And I'm a million miles off that, but I'm learning. I'm learning the importance of it, and I'm trying to be content, and I'm trying to say no to the consumerist elements in my life, the need for the latest iPad thing, you know, the need for the latest iPhone 4. Boy, was that a close shave. I, I thought, I'm not going to have one. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And then I found my feet taking me to the O2 shop. <laughs> I said, get back there, get back. Then I got in, and I just missed it. They had just sold out. And I said, serves you right, serves you right. And boy, am I glad I didn't get it because there's been so much trouble. And so now I'll get it at Christmas when they sort all the problems out. Yeah, fine. Uh, no, no, no. I'm going to be content. I'm going to be content with my brick, you know. You know, you hear what I'm saying. We're not, we're not encouraged to be content. And the psalmist here is, is in that wonderful moment of revelation where he says, you know what? You've been good to me. Yeah, I want this, that, and the other, but Father, you've been good to me. There is great freedom in contentment. Would love to spend more time on that. Verse 6 really runs on from that. I'll just read the verse because it may not be cleared straight off. It says here, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. This, of course, is a reference to the system that was in Israel at the time where every family was allotted, was allotted usually by some kind of lottery, uh, some space, some land. It was part of their inheritance. And what the psalmist is saying here says, well, my, what, I, I got a winning ticket. What I've got is, is really beautiful. Now, Fliss and I, at the moment, we live in Hatfield. And I, how many of you live in Hatfield here? We live on the outskirts of Hatfield. Uh, Hatfield has some challenges, I have to say. I mean, we used to live in the inner city and nothing was as bad as that. But, there was, but Hatfield has some challenges and where we live has some challenges. And Fliss and I have just spent a glorious week in France this last week touring in my little MG, as I said, and, and seeing beautiful places and visiting friends who bought jeets and things out there. And, you know, after a while you start thinking, my goodness, this is fabulous. Boy, what I could do with this and this would be such fun. And let's open up a and b and all that kind of thing. And we'll just, you know, we'll just bow out gracefully from the vineyard and we'll get, you know, Richard to run it or something and whatever, you know. But having seen Shorts right now, I'm sorry. <laughs> Those knees sent a shiver through me, so... But you know, and you start looking at this beautiful countryside and the cheese, the wine, the bread, you know, the company, and you think, Hatfield, oh, flip, we've got to go back to Hatfield. <laughs> oh, great, you know. But I got back to Hatfield yesterday, and I was pleased to be back. And uh, I went out into the garden. It's a little patch. I mean, you could get probably, many of you have been to my house. I mean, you could probably get 10 of my gardens in this, on this floor space here. But, you know, there's a vine there. It's doing really well. The apples are doing well. Uh, the grass was very long. But, you know, it was very quiet. Very quiet. I turned the little water feature on, and I sat out there for a while. And I, I wanted to stop myself because I was in Hatfield. But something rose up in me, and I said, Lord, 
the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Thank you, my Lord. Thank you. And there's, that's a discipline I'm trying to cultivate in myself, a discipline of, of thankfulness. Because if you set yourself to be thankful, you start to look for those blessings, which our grandmothers would have taught us if they did their job properly. We should count. Count your blessings. Count your blessings. So a thankful heart. So where we've got, you know, the, the source is God, the pleasure of the people, a, a quiet spirit, a thankful heart. Next little point here, a listening ear, verse 7. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me, you know, gives counsel, speaks to me. Even at night my heart instructs me. One of the sort of signature talks at this year's Global Leadership Summit was by Bill Hybels on the whispering God. And boy, so much of what he had to say resonated with me and, and encouraged me to expect God to to speak through all sorts of different means, but to speak through his word, of course, but through other things as well. Those little promptings. And as I reflected upon my life, the word has been absolutely foundational for me, but, but I've also been, I've tried to attune my ear as, as I've walked this path of life to the whispering of God. We had two little examples while we were away on holiday. We were at a restaurant and uh, we were sat at a table and quite close actually was a, an older English couple there and we didn't realize they were English to begin with but uh, you know, after a while picked up that they were having a little bit of a conversation and it was in England, English and, and I kept thinking we should speak to them but then I, I, I don't know, I, usually I'm pretty confident but I, I sort of got all silly about it and decided not to and anyway finally when we finished the meal they get up and they turn to us and say Bye-bye. And that was the first and last thing they said to us. They just said, bye-bye, very cheerily. And they walked off. And I thought, oh, I should have spoken to them. And Fliss said, do you know what? All through that meal, I felt like we should be speaking to that couple. And I thought, oh, Lord, I blew it. That was a whisper of God. We should have chatted with them for whatever reason. You know... We miss something there, Lord. The whisper of God and Flissy, she, we both started to beat ourselves up because we felt like we missed something. God was prompting us to chat to these people. So, we, you know, that almost spoiled the meal. We, we missed a moment there. Darn it. Anyway, we're driving back, and this was on Friday. We're hammering up to Calais. We're a little bit late, little MG, you know, roof down, sunshine, tearing along. And we pull into one of these rest uh, places on the, on the motorway there, and they have kind of nice picnic areas, and we thought we'd just have a quick cup of tea. Anyway, as I swing into the car park, there's, uh, uh, I can't avoid it almost, it's plonk there, there's this great big Peugeot estate car, and it's loaded up with camping equipment, there's bikes hanging off the side of it, there's, an, there's a... Uh, several kids running around. There's a fella in a yellow jacket and he's underneath it doing something and there's two or three other... There, there seemed to be a crowd of people around this car and I pulled up and I saw this and, and uh, obviously the car was... There was some kind of problem with it and, but, but there was the guy in the yellow jacket and they were working on it. But I felt like the Lord said, if you go over and say, what do you want, what do you need? I thought, what a funny thing to say. And I thought, well, there's a load of people over there. I mean, all, there's a guy here that's fixing it, you know. And then I thought about the couple in the restaurant. I thought, oh, oh, you know. So I went over to the thing and I said, like the Lord said, what do you want, what do you need? And they kind of looked at me slightly askance. 
And they said, oh, we're having a terrible time. We had a blowout on the motorway. We're going to miss our ferry. The jack is, is bending. And then I realized that the guy in the, yellow jack was, in the yellow jacket was the father, and he wasn't some mechanic. He was just put the yellow jacket on, which he's supposed to do in France. And, and then there were several other people hanging around, various other Brits who'd come over with their kinds of jacks. But of course, there's not one size fits all with these jacks. They're all, you know, car particular, car specific. So nothing was working. And they showed me this bent thing. And I just said, I said, well, I got a trolley jack in the back of my car. Would that help? And they go, wah! <laughs> and I just walk over to my little MG, you know, and I pull out the trolley jack underneath it. Eh, eh, eh. Up it goes, wheel off. They've been there an hour and a half. On with the wheel, and down it goes. They, they want to carry me around the car park. <laughs> They're giving me bottles of wine. They're giving me chocolate. I don't want any of this stuff. The bloke turns out to be a classic car dealer, and he's going to send me a whole load of rubber hoses for my car. And <laughs> they want my address. And they're setting up a shrine for me in, 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 in Essex somewhere, you know? You know? I'm this, this, this angel who appeared in this bright yellow sports car and came up with a trolley jack, you know. It'll pro there'll probably be a symbol of me standing, you know, <laughs> a statue in Essex somewhere carrying a trolley jack like that, you know. St. Christopher of the trolley jack, you know. Oh, man. There was a moment I could have missed there, but I, it was funny. I wasn't going to take that flipping trolley jack. It weighs a ton. I thought, well, you know, I might have to change the engine in the middle of a trip or something, you know. I'll take it with me, but maybe I'll leave the hoist and the air compressor, you know. Whispering of God, these little promptings. You think, ah, you can argue yourself out. You, we've all been in that place where you argue yourself out of doing some little act of kindness. But God's heart is compassionate. God's kindness is abroad in the world. And sometimes he wants us to be the means by which that compassion and kindness is shared. Be attentive to those little promptings, the whispers of God. Moving on quickly, moving on all too quickly. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. We need to develop that passion for the presence of God. It's something that we do value very highly in the vineyard church, but in the vineyard movement. I wouldn't say it was an exclusive thing, but we do value the presence of God. We love his presence. And we are trusting and believing and increasingly experiencing that doesn't matter how many are together, there is an opportunity to enjoy the presence of God. It's more than peace. It's more than good music. It's more than the right words. It's some added value that God brings to the thing. And we as Christians, followers of Jesus, have begun to recognize the presence of God. And it's something that we crave and we set our sights on. It says in the scriptures, you know, Abraham, one of the great heroes of the faith, God said to him, I'll give you this, I'll give you the nations, I'll give you land, I'll give you flocks, I'll give you wealth, I'll give you servants and wives and all the rest. And he did all of that. I'll give you an heir. And he did all of that. But at the end of the day, what God said to Abraham, he said, Abraham, once again, like Jesus, look at me. I am your very great reward. I am your very great reward. 
And one of the kind of challenges and aspirations of my life is to make God enough. Enough for me. There's all this other stuff I'm interested in, but I want him to be enough. I want him to be my magnificent obsession. I want to set my heart. And some days it's easy, and other days it's very hard when things are not going well. And I'm beginning to think that God's got it in for me. But I know that's a lie. That's just my brokenness interpreting circumstances. But I want to feed and fashion within myself a passion for Jesus, for he is our very great reward. Now, this may sound strange to you, but actually, if I just say to you, uh, a show of hands, how many of you have ever been in love? I hope that you are in love, but many, many of you. You know what the first flush of love is like. Suddenly, that individual becomes your magnificent obsession. It is enough to be with them. They'll say to you, oh, I've just got to take this load of rubbish to the tip. And you say, fine, I'll come with you. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, whatever. We'll make a day of it, you know. <laughs> you see, the, the circumstances or the task or the place is incidental. It is enough to be with the object, the subject of your passion and desire. You know that. You know what that was like. I, I pray that it's still like that, please God. But you see, it's enough to know him. He becomes our magnificent obsession, the source and sum of all our longings. That is the potential that every single one of us has genetically built into us. It's a wonderful thought. Nearly there. All of this then, and the psalmist says, therefore, so he's gone through this kind of path of life. These are the things that I'm aspiring to. These are the things I'm working on. You know, this, this, is, this is what is important to me, what I've, I've seen to be meaningful. And he says, verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Verse 10, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your, one, your holy ones see decay. An eternal perspective. His eyes have been lifted off the drudgery of the gray and daily routine. Through, through this discipline, through this aspiration, he's, he's looking forward. He has this spring in, a, in his step, and, and the, it leads him into that place. All this leads him into that place of gaining an eternal perspective on life, an eternal perspective. And something like that is, is life-giving because today is never the end of the story. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, there is an eternal perspective. And Jesus, as the firstborn from the dead, of course, the first one who was raised from the dead is just the first one. And we follow on and we have that promise in the Christian faith that we will know life in all its fullness and for eternity. Finally then he says, you have made known to me the path of life, verse 11. You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And if that ain't something to aspire to, I don't know what is. Let's stand and pray.